Lord, as we enjoy being together as families, as our kids go out and um, celebrate together and learn together of you, um, Lord, we just realise that you have called us all to be like children, to come um, with a simplicity to just simply hear your word and trust it. So Lord, help us to hear your voice through your word this morning and hearts to trust what you're asking of us and what you're calling us into. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, We're continuing our series through the book of Philippians. I'm going to try and summarize the point of this entire passage. We're going to read from chapter 3, verse 17 in the book of Philippians, all the way down to verse uh, 9 of chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 9. This is one of the places where I scratch my head as to why they put the chapter marker where they did. But here's the big idea. Here's the summary that I'm going to make of the passage that we're looking. The reality of what will be should strengthen your resolve to stand firm in the present. All right? That's the, the big idea. The reality of what will be should strengthen your resolve to stand firm in the present. We're going to unpack that over the next little while together. Of course, I think the passage has a lot more to say about how we can do that, but we will get to that. But for the moment, let's just focus on the relationship between the future and the present. I think we live in a culture, we live in a a world that daily exerts enormous pressure on us. Um, I liken it a bit to a, a gravitational pull that we can never seem to escape. We never find refuge from it. It's continually diverting our attention to the here and the now. Have you found that? So much of our life, so much of our experience seems to want us to uh, sort of put all of our focus, all of our attention, all of our resources into the here and the now. It seeks to impose its will on us to conform to the pattern that this world has set. So the question isn't, the question that we shouldn't ask ourselves is, am I being influenced? The question we need to ask ourselves is, how am I being influenced? And what am I doing to fight it? Because we're all in a battle every day. The world wants to conform us to its image. We're being asked every day to shape our lives around the pattern of the here and the now. But this morning, I just want to unpack what I think is just one reality that changes how we view the world and our lives in it. How we view the world and how we live in it. And then I think this passage gives us three strategies 
that we can daily use to fight against the pressure to conform to the world. So here's the one reality, and then there's three strategies. That's the way that I'm going to structure the, the morning. One reality, three strategies. Here it is. This is the one reality. Living now in eager expectation of then. All right? Living now in eager expectation of then. Every culture, every culture has specific markers that set it apart from all the other ones. All right? More than the way we look, the color of our skin maybe, or the different parts of the world that we come from, every one of those, those has various cultural values that define who they are. And I think it's this reality that Paul draws on for us as he points us to sort of grapple and fight with how our identity shapes us. And in fact, more than how our identity, but which identity we choose to associate with. So I'm going to get you to go to your Bible. I want you to read with me from chapter 3, verse 20, down to verses 1 of chapter 4. So chapter 3, verse 20, down to 4, verse 1. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So what I want to do is point out the logical progression that Paul makes just in these few verses, okay? Because if we miss this, we'll miss the central thrust of what I think is the, the direction of the wider passage. So here's the first thing that I want you to notice about this progress of logic that Paul makes in those few verses. First one is this. In Christ, we have a different citizenship status to where we live. In Christ, we have a different citizenship status to where we live. Verse 20 of chapter 3, our citizenship is where? In heaven. All right? Easiest way for me to describe this is I've lived in New South Wales for more than 20 years. In fact, I've lived in New South Wales longer than I lived in the state that I was born in. But I'll tell you what, in a couple of weeks' time, when the Maroons and the Blues run out onto that field, guess which team I'm cheering for? South Wales. All right? I have no idea how you guys live in such delusion. (laughs) I don't care if I live somewhere else in the world for the next 50 or 60 years. I'm a Queenslander. I always will be. All right? That's my citizenship. That's my status that's my identity it's who i associate with i can live in brazil i could live in vanuatu i could live in new south wales i'm still a queenslander 
All right? Paul is saying where you live doesn't always define your citizenship. He says our citizenship is in heaven. heaven. All right? That identifies who we are. And look, we're living here on earth. The season of our pilgrimage is unknown. But it's not our home. We have a home. We have a citizenship. It's in Christ. It's a different citizenship status to where we live. That's the first thing I want you to notice about those few verses. The second one is this. So while we are exiles and aliens, which is how the Bible describes us, exiles and aliens, we shouldn't get too comfortable in our postcode. We should live here, but we live here with an eager expectation of there. We have a groom who is soon to arrive to collect his bride. Jesus is coming for his church. We're going home soon. I said that my citizenship is in Queensland. That's pretty general. Where I, where I was born and raised, my formative years up in the Gulf of Carpentaria, in a tiny little town that most people have never heard of, even less people will ever go there. Just outside of the township of Doomagee is a river, the Nicholson River. And there's no bridge over that river. There's just a cement causeway that crosses the stones, which a good part of the year, the river runs barely. It's dry. You can cross that river without getting your tyres wet. Some parts of the year, in the wet season, the river absolutely torrentially runs through that riverbed and you can't cross it. The few times that I've returned home, back to Doomagee, there's a certain point as I'm driving along what's now called the Savannah Way between Burketown and Doomagee, where you dip down off the plains and it drops down to a sort of ironstone rocky gully and you cross the causeway. And when my tyres hit the causeway, there's just this feeling which is, I'm home. You have a place like that? A place that you've maybe grown up in. Maybe it's not where you were born and raised. Maybe there's some other place that you've lived in your life that holds significant experience and memory for you so that as you return there, you have this sense where you think, I'm, I'm home. I'm coming home. I wonder if we've grown very comfortable with our postcode. I wonder if we've grown very comfortable with this world to the point that we don't dream and think of the fact that Jesus is coming soon and we will be home. That's what Paul is asking us to think of. He's saying, hey, listen, your citizenship is in heaven. What will Jesus do when he gets here? This text told us, He'll set everything right. 
all those broken dreams, all those broken realities, all those desires, all the things in this world that we see as being so fractured about our life and about our relationships, Jesus is coming and he will set things right. But I want you to look at the the leap that Paul makes as he connects the reality of chapters 3 to the reality of chapter 4, where somebody just randomly put a chapter number. Chapter 4, verse 1, begins by saying, So then. It does in the Christian Standard Bible. Maybe the ESV will say, Therefore. Some other translation will get it mostly right. So then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord. So then, the so then or the therefore connects it back to chapter three, the reality that we have a citizenship which is not here, it's in heaven. We have a saviour who's coming from heaven to gather his bride and set all things right. And Paul says, so then. So then, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. That so then, or that therefore, is the key. Because we can walk around all day claiming citizenship in heaven, but at some stage we have to ask the question, so what? Who cares if if for eternity we're going to live in heaven? What does that actually mean? Are we just going to sing hymns all day? I hope so. Are we just going to stand around and, man, when I was a kid and they used to say, oh, we're going to go to be with the Lord and worship for eternity. And I thought, man, the hour and a half at Sunday already feels like an eternity. (laughs) The idea of doing that for an actual eternity was not appealing to me. Thank the Lord that he's given me a better vision of what worship is but so what what does the reality of then have to do with now I think Philippians 3 20 to 21 that we read is the battery that powers chapter 4 verse 1 look at it so then in this manner stand firm in the Lord The question we need to ask ourselves this morning, how are you standing firm in the Lord? Now, oh, we can dream of eternity and we can talk about how wonderful it will be. And we should. We should live every day with an expectation that perhaps today is the day. But how do you stand firm in the Lord now? When the disappointments of life are just coming at you like a wave after wave at the ocean how do you stand firm in the lord when dreams that you had for your life have not materialized the way that you thought they should how do you stand firm in the lord when there's heartache and grief how do you stand firm in the lord when the battle with sin seems overpowering How do you stand firm in the Lord? Paul says, in this manner, in this manner, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. 
What's he referring to? The manner of life that lives in the present, but in light of the future. Living now in eager expectation of then. That's how we stand firm, Paul says. It seems pretty vague. Maybe you're saying, well, how do I do that, Chris? Well, I think Paul gives us three strategies in this text. Three strategies that help us understand what it means to live now in eager expectation of then. Three strategies that living with the hope of eternity in the present, how those things will make a difference for us. And here's the first strategy. I think it's a fair question to ask how we do it. I think apart from the general mindset that will begin to shape every aspect of our living... Here are the three strategies. Strategy one, the power of example. The power of example. So grab your Bibles. We're going to go back up into chapter three, reading from verse 17 and verse 19, the verses that immediately preceded what we just read. Philippians 3, 17 through 19 says this, Join in imitating me brothers and sisters and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us for I've often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ their end is destruction their God is their stomach their glory is in their shame and they are focused on earthly things All right, let's pause there. The first strategy, the first strategy that we should employ is to take stock of who you are giving your attention to. Plain and simple, the people in your life, this is not theoretical, this is not hypothetical, The people who are in your life are either modelling what it looks like to eagerly await our true citizenship or they are modelling what it looks like to compromise and feel at home in the world. So who are your examples? Who are you looking to to show you what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord? Modeling your life now based on the reality of then. Who are your examples? Who are you looking to? I want to make it clear, Paul isn't pushing the idea, which in recent times has sort of become known as Christian celebrities. It's not what Paul's talking about. Paul isn't asking you to put special Christians up on some high pedestal and gather around them like a tribe, bowing down and worshipping to whoever you think the latest trendy Christian is. There isn't a single Christian out there, alive or dead, who can improve your standing before a holy God. Only Christ can do that. In Christ, you already have the highest standing there is. But what Paul is asking you to do is to keep your eyes open to the type of quiet life that demonstrates an uneasy existence in this world. He's looking for people and he's asking you to look for people who have an eager thirst for the world to come. 
Paul asks you to walk in this world like he did. And then because we're designed to live in proximity with each other, he asks us to look for people who live eagerly in this world in light of the next right here, right now. So who are you looking to? The the people around your life, the the influences of media maybe, but especially the relationships that you have, are either asking you to put stock in the here and now, or they're asking you and showing you and modelling to you, this is what it looks like to live now in light of eternity. So who are you looking to? Who are your examples for how to live this life? We should have them, Paul says. We need them. We need people to walk beside us that we can look to, not for our satisfaction in Christ, but as an example of what it looks like to hope in eternity and live out a quiet faith in this world today. That's strategy number one. Strategy number two. The first was the power of example, right? Second strategy. We order our relational priorities by the nearness of Jesus. We order our relational priorities by the nearness of Jesus. I'll read the text and then I'll explain what I mean. Philippians chapter 4, read with me from verse 2 down to verse 7. I urge Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything... Through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now just imagine for me, with me for a moment what it must have been like on the Sunday morning when Paul's letter that he had, had transcribed as he was sitting in prison, this letter that we've been reading and studying together, Can you imagine what it must have been like that Sunday morning when the church in Philippi was gathering? Maybe they they met every Sunday. They all gathered together. And there were these two ladies that used to come to church every week. They used to have been great friends. Not only were they great friends, but they were partners in the gospel with each other. They were co-laborers and helpers to Paul at some time in the past. We don't know what happened to these two women, but somewhere along the line, a falling out had occurred. We could suppose that most Sunday mornings, these two women would walk in to wherever the church was meeting at the time, maybe someone's house or a public gathering or someplace, and had difficulty greeting one another. Maybe, you know, the side eye. Maybe one sat over here and one sat over there. Maybe, maybe they tried to find out who was going to be attending the various events, prayer times that the church was gathering. 
And Sintigi might have been saying, I wonder if Yudia will be there. If she is, I'm not going. We'd never do that, would we? Would we? Can you imagine what it must have been like for Yudia and Syntyche on the morning that Paul's letter arrived in Philippi? They'd attended church like they do all the other weeks. One was sitting over there and one was sitting over here. And someone got up and said, listen, we've received a letter from our dearly beloved Paul. We're going to read it out. Oh, wonderful. It's so great to hear from Paul. Chapter 1 sounds good. Chapter 2, there was no chapters in that stage, but... Chapter 2, it's going great. Chapter 3, so good. Chapter 4. Talk about name and shame. Do we have names in this church that we could do that with? Are you sitting, squirming in your seat just now, just thinking, I hope Chris doesn't do that? I'm not. But I could. Churches from that day to this have been marked by relational falling outs. It happens. It's not that we have a church where that never happens. The problem is that it kept happening and wasn't resolved. And Paul says one of the strategies of living now in light of tomorrow, living in the present in light of eternity, is that we begin to order our relational priorities by the fact that Jesus is coming soon. Can you imagine what must have been like for those two women to be sitting in that congregation, hear their names singled out? I don't have any idea what passed between them. We don't know what caused their falling out or their fellowship to cease. But now they were at quiet war with one another. I get it, I do. People are difficult. I presume that's true for most people, mostly because I know how difficult I must be for you. People say dumb things. They do. People do thoughtless things. Some of us have faulty filters. Some of us are more selfish than we ought to be. Some of us are insensitive Our personalities are fractured. Our peacemaking abilities are stunted. And sin still stirs the pot. I really do. I get it. But here's the thing. We are the family of God. You look around this room. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel has brought near and made one, tearing down the dividing walls of hostility. That's what the gospel does. And for too long, we have ordered our relational priorities by the world's standards. 
where little slights and insensitive comments, even unintentional hurts, are all gathered up and hoarded in a vault, ready to be pulled back out and used as ammunition at a moment's notice. So fair warning, I want to say something a little bit blunt this morning. Some of you just need to get over it. Why? Not because you're right and they're wrong or they're right and you're wrong. The reason why we need to get over it is this. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Maybe tomorrow Jesus will come in the clouds. Maybe the trump will sound this afternoon. The the King of kings and Lord of lords will come to gather his church. And you and I will be too busy playing petty relational games. Maybe you're not sure how to just get over it on your own. You're like, yeah, good on you, Chris. Thanks, mate. That's super sensitive. Nice pastoral work. Maybe you feel stuck. That's okay. Don't stay stuck. Have someone help you cross that bridge. Too many of us are just standing on our side of the divide waiting for the other person to take the first step. But the Lord is near. Why don't you take the first step? Why don't I? Maybe the other person might just meet you in the middle. I like to think, I really like to think that at the end of that Sunday morning, when Paul's letter had been read out, that maybe Yudia and Syntyche looked at each other from across the building, across the room, Maybe they had tears in their eyes. Maybe they greeted each other later. Maybe it took them days. Maybe it took them weeks. But Paul was urging them, order your relational priorities by the fact that our home is in heaven and Jesus is coming and he's here. He's almost here. So let's learn to live in relationship in light of eternity. We order our relational priorities so that grace is evident to everyone. Did you see that? We get those really famous verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. He's not talking about something random. He's still talking about our relationships here. He says, let grace be evident to all. Are our relationships defined by grace or by law, by rule keeping, by that person doesn't deserve it? Or when people look at this church and the relationships that make it up, do people say, man, what must it be like to be a part of a community like that? Where grace is just poured out on one another. Why? Because we're particularly special? No. Because we've deserved it? No. Because Jesus is coming soon. 
So let's be showing the world what it looks like for relationships to be bathed in grace. I said we had three strategies. Here's the third. Strategy number three. Audit the diet of your thought life and set a plan to improve its health. Audit the diet of your thought life and set a plan to improve its health. Read with me Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. What do you dwell on? What do I dwell on? When you aren't focusing or forcing your mind to process information that you have to, what does your mind default back to? What are the things that you think about when you're at rest? What makes up your daydreams? That's what you dwell on. I know when you're at work and you have to do a certain task and you've got to be 100% on that task, that's what your mind's on. Should be. That's honouring to the Lord and honouring to your employer. Honouring to your clients or whatever it might be. Maybe you're at school and you have to give all your attention to what's happening in the class. I don't remember what that was like, but you should have been doing that. That's honouring to your teacher, honouring to your education. You should be doing that. But when you don't have to do that, full time has gone, the siren's gone, knock off, the bell's rung, then where does our mind run? What do we dwell on? Now look, we can visit things in our thought sometimes, and sometimes we just go, oh, that's not what I want my mind to be dwelling on, that's not what I want my mind to run to. That happens to all of us that's living in this world. But where does your mind find its rest? That's what we dwell on. It's where our mind feels comfortable in our thought life. The strategy is we need to audit our thought life. Living firm in the Lord now in light of the fact that we, our citizenship is in heaven, that we have a saviour who is coming and he's coming imminently, means that we want to capture every thought that's going on as well and we want to make sure that our thoughts are at home, that our thoughts will dwell with what will honour the king as he returns. And so we have those verses again. Whatever 
is true. We get caught up in false thoughts, conspiracy theories, and you know, listen, whatever is true, dwell on that. Is it honorable? Dwell on that. Is it just and fair? Then honor that. Dwell on that. Is it pure? Then dwell on that. Is it lovely? Then dwell on that. Is it commendable? Then dwell on that. Moral excellence. Is it praiseworthy? Dwell on that. All right, let's wrap it up. Our big principle was that we live firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. How do we do that, Chris? We stand firm in the Lord. Largely by putting our attention into the fact that our citizenship isn't here. Our citizenship's in heaven. We, we pursue the power of example. We look around us and we see the people that we share life with and we look for people who can show us what it looks like to live with eager expectation for the return of Jesus. Not celebrities, just everyday men and women, boys and girls who live at peace in this world knowing that it is not their final home. We pursue the power of example and we look to others who model the type of eager longing we desire for ourselves and that's who we follow as an example. And then we order our relational priorities by the nearness of Jesus. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. So let's be known by our graciousness rather than our pettiness. And three, we begin to audit the diet of our thought life. What are we feeding on? What, what will make us stronger? And so we drop a list. What's my thought life like? Where do I dwell when my mind is at rest? And then we enact a plan to improve its health. We start to say, listen, I can dwell on things better than this. What am I going to replace that with out of my diet, right? You can't live on Big Macs all your life. You can't. We somewhere along the way need to be able to say, what are the Big Mac thoughts that I'm dwelling on? What am I feeding my mind and my heart with? And we need to cut back on them. Maybe we need to remove them all together. They have to be replaced with something. Okay? Uh, dieting to get healthy doesn't mean starving yourself. You still have to eat. So what are you going to eat? Well, can I suggest a couple of practical things? One, the youth reading plan. It's not just for youth. Go and see Marty and ask him, how do I sign up? I want to get that Bible text coming into my phone or my iPad. Or if you don't use a digital device, you can print off 
a print list of what those readings are. You can stick them into your Bible. You can put them on the back of your toilet door. I don't care where you put them. Put them somewhere where you'll read them and so that you know what the young people in this church are reading, what other people are reading, and I'm going to read along with them. If you find it hard to have a conversation with the youth of this church, if you're an older one here, there's something that you could do. Read the same passage they're reading and go up and have a conversation. They're standing in a circle somewhere over here, probably talking about something you don't understand. That's fine. Just walk up. Just go, I was reading Matthew chapter 6 today. Is that the right reading? They're like, yep. All right? Start a conversation about what the Bible said this week. You could do that. Here's a second thing you could do. I know next Saturday there is a peacemakers course happening. Um, we would love it. Peacemakers is a, a short uh, day-long course that you can attend which gives you some practical examples and practical principles at how you can live at peace with other people who are jerks. <laughs> And how they can live at peace with you, because you're a jerk. (laughs) Peacemakers is a practical course that you can attend. Um, Go and see Tim, Tim over here, after the service or during the week, and find out more information. But it will be next Saturday, uh, and there'll be possibly a couple of carloads of people who are going down. Um, But day long, not a full whole long like sunrise to sunset thing, but... There you go, 8.30 to 3.30, and it'll be some practical ways that the Bible informs. It's a biblically-based short course, biblically-based short course on how you and I can implement principles from the Scriptures to live at peace with one another. I think that would be a practical thing that you could get about doing even in the next week to implement some of this that we're talking about today. Good? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together in the word. Thank you for the way that you shape our thinking, not just to be pressured into the norms of this world that we've grown accustomed with, but help shape our mind and our insight and our vision to see that our home is not here and that you are a saviour, a victorious saviour who is returning soon to gather his church, to call us home. So help us to live out those principles. Help us to stand firm here in light of eternity. We need your help. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit, instruction of your word. And we lean on you in Jesus' name. Amen.